Last One to the Party, the podcast where we check in with someone who's checking out a classic film, long-running TV show, or legendary performer for the very first time. Welcome to part two of our discussion on Jaws with Ben Bromfield. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Ben is an accomplished composer. He writes on the TV shows for Boss Baby and Where's Waldo. I do have another show coming out in 2021. It's called Ginny and Georgia. It's coming out on Netflix. I believe it's coming out in 2021. It's like a young adult dramedy fish out of water thing sort of it's 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 a lot of things it's a lot of things you should just watch it i've known ben for at least eight years we've played together every week at the varnish pre-covid quarantine obviously eight years we've done the varnish 2012 it was it was a very pivotal moment in my life i had just moved to silver lake i had just started working for tree adams which was a job i would have for five years lead to me having a career and i just met libby and we had just started uh, the gig. And it's all within the span of like a month and a half in 2012. Yeah, it's super fucked up not doing the gig. It's so weird. And because, and I was just thinking about how I really would like to play some standards. My chops probably suck. I have not had any opportunities to really practice. And I'm just like, huh, I wonder if I can even play anymore. I was jamming out a little on the, on my, the old whirly, playing some of the tunes. I tried to play something and it was terrible, and then I played something and it was pretty good. <laughs> I always have a special affection for that kind of Fender Rhodesy kind of sound, playing standards and things like that on it, because my first saxophone lessons as a kid in high school, the sax teachers in the Bay Area were all just dudes, and that was the piano they had in their apartments or their houses. Like they'd be chord changes and so that to me is the sound of learning how to play jazz that fender Rhodes playing like invitation or blue bossa you know what i mean like that's it as back when these uh babies were functional instead of just like hipster cult classic bullshit probably 81 82 yeah yeah no that's i don't know exactly when mine is from for some reason i thought it was 74 but i don't know you should look it up. It might be a serial number. It's probably illegible at this point, though. Who really cares? I mean, I don't really, I don't maintain it either. In part two, we talk a little bit more about the movie itself. As you know, in the first part, we talked about uh, the music side of it, John Williams, what goes into film scoring and stuff like that. In this one, we go down the road of uh, mentioning 70s fitness, how Jaws is an allegory for today, some movie tropes that didn't exist yet in the 70s, how one really long-running popular TV show is maybe ruining pop culture for all of us, and in praise of Roy Scheider. Tell me about the film itself. What stood out to you from the film? What resonated strongly with you? Well, one thing that I thought was funny is that... Um... There are a lot of lumpy white people in this movie. <laughs> there are a lot of like shirtless, middle-aged, just normal looking mid-50s type parents at the beach with their kids. I just thought that was interesting for some reason. That it's just sort of like it wasn't trying to do anything but tell a story. It didn't matter that not everybody was like pretty in this movie. <laughs> Dad bod gone bad. Exactly. And getting punished by being eaten by a shark. Um, you know, and similar to the genre thing I was saying, like, I feel like there were a lot of cliches that were absent 
that have since become cliches that like I would maybe expect from a movie, like certain things, like for example, the kind of camaraderie between Brody and, uh, and Richard Dreyfuss, character, you know, he shows up and the guy's like, thank God you're here. None of this, like, this is out of your jurisdiction crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's not even really a modern thing that you see anymore, or at least not that literally, but I, I do feel like a lot of movies take the opportunity to create conflict with like separate conflict at the beginning of the movie um, that allows like growth between like the two main characters or whatever, the three main characters that feels like such a trope to me. And this movie didn't do that. It didn't need it because these characters are in an extraordinary situation and police chief Brody, you know, he needs all the help he can get. He's reacting the way a normal a person would actually react to that. They're not manufacturing drama. You're right. It's not conflict in the way that you would see it now. It's kind of an interdependence. Brody doesn't know what to do about this, so he needs some expert guidance and advice. And that's partly where Hooper comes in. But then they both need Quint to get out there to do what they need to do. And Quint doesn't really respect either of them, but he kind of disrespects Brody less because he can tell him what to do and he can BS him into believing whatever he wants him to believe. And so it's really interesting. But also like, you know, and on that same note, Hooper, you know, he's the scientist guy, but he's also a good sailor. Like he can also man the boat and he knows what's going on. He doesn't need to be just like the brainy guy. And that's all he is. And it's smart because somebody who is a, you know, marine biologist is going to be on a boat all the time, you know? It would only make sense that he would have learned how to tie a knot or two. At the same time, I, I still feel like they could have taken some cheap shots to make the nerdy guy nerdier and instead did not because it wouldn't have served the story and it would have been distracting. And again, that just feels like something that would happen in a movie that was made later where they sort of just somebody says at some point, some executive tries to make it funnier at a certain point or add more jabs in or add more conflict in or something like that. Some executive who worries that people aren't going to get it. And so we got to simplify. Yes. We must blame the evil overlord executives, <laughs> all the bad choices. Um, there were some really cool cinemat cinematography things that stuck out to me early on in the film. After the first attack, there's that scene where everyone's on the beach. Brody is on the beach he keeps looking at the water because he's worried about another shark attack. And the camera does this really weird thing where people keep coming up to him to talk to him, but it's showing from his point of view and it keeps shifting those people out of frame a little bit <laughs> to look at the water. I don't know. I just thought that was a really cool effect. It made you focus on the water and it just took all of the emphasis off of these people and they were kind of annoying, which was exactly the point. When watching this movie, was there any sense of time distance any sense of this is oh i'm watching an old movie or did you just get pulled in and you're just watching it on its own merits i definitely did get pulled in but i am always cognizant of the stylistic differences in old movies um you know which i've talked about a good bit in terms of like the score there is a certain charm where i don't feel like movies were as tethered back then to certain things that they are now which probably has to do with the commercialization of them or the over commercialization where everything has to fit into a box and appeal to a specific demographic and all this stuff where they just were telling a story and it fits in a few different genres. You know, I, I always notice stuff like film grade, you know, at the beginning of, of a film, like if it were a black and white movie, uh, it's hard for me to ignore that in the very beginning. Um, but yeah, a good movie will pull me in 
And this one definitely did that. But the the whole first section of it was just like, it's like the perfect movie for right now. <laughs> We've got this pandemic and we're all quarantined. And, and it's just like, it's a man versus nature story. The arrogance of man is such a huge part of the first section of it. The arrogance of man and the stupidity of government. <laughs> and I remember the beginning of the pandemic when Trump was kind of denying that the coronavirus was as big a threat as it is, um, or he was downplaying it, or they were playing up, opening up the economy and putting so much emphasis on that. It's like exactly what the mayor of uh, Amity Island, that's exactly what he's doing. And it's the exact same argument. <laughs> we need uh, we need summer dollars, you know, or something is what he said. It's like, he's like, we have to close the beach. And he's like, well, we can't do that for the 4th of July, you know, money, you know, which is important. But when a problem is big enough, people, are, people aren't worried about what they're going to buy or where they're going to go and spend their money. That's just not how people think when they're worried about their safety. And that was such a huge part of this movie. And uh, that little boy died because of it. And what's his name on the boat? Hal, what's his name? Whose head came rolling out of the boat? He died too. And the, and the girl in the beginning, she died. Like three, four people died from that. Counting Quint, that's five, six people. Although the girl at the beginning, you can't blame on the government, but <laughs> for the lack of government <laughs> True. response. Yeah. And the arrogance of, of man, the way all the sailors react to uh, the, uh, <laughs> the shark. And they're all just sort of fighting over each other for who's going to kill it as if it's going to just be so easy. I don't know if you picked up on this, but the shark is is the coronavirus in my analogy. Oh, I thought yeah. Roy Scheider was the coronavirus in your uh, analogy. And so Quint is just the symptoms of the coronavirus. Quint is the loss of taste and smell. No, Quint, he's a hydrochloroquine. Hydrochloroquint. I, damn it. Damn you. Speaking of Quint, here's for me, having seen this movie easily a half dozen times in my life. That movie now to me is one scene. Quint talking about the USS Indianapolis. Oh my God, that's so good. That scene was so good. One thought at the end of it, they had to have actually been drunk for that, right? Somebody find out, please, and like tweet at me or something and let me know. It was They were just so believably drunk. And this is another thing where like, what genre is that? You know, like what? It's just gripping interesting character and this where you're just like oh holy shit this guy really had to be on in this place it was his destiny and what happens to him is fitting in the end but at that point you're just like no wonder he's obsessed with killing sharks and his his performance is it's the kind of performance that should be held up to all nascent young actors of hey this is what you want to strive for because he's not in tears and tearing at his shirt as he's tearing as he's talking about this terrible memory. He's got a glint in his eye at certain spots. He's got kind of a smile on his face as he's remembering like, and then, you know, guys would be banging and then pretty soon you turn, turn one over. You know what I mean? Like all of that stuff. There's so many things that are going on in his face while he's telling the story that sometimes match what he's telling and sometimes completely contrast it. And it just keeps you riveted to him. It's one of my favorite performances I've ever seen. It's so good. Yeah, it was very, very striking and just holy shit. And at that point, I really didn't know it was going to happen. I mean, that that's some of the fun of seeing a movie like this for the first time. It hadn't really been spoiled for me 
I mean, it was just, uh, I didn't know he was going to die. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't know if there's any real spoilers, though. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like The Sixth Sense where there's a kind of a secret. And then when it's revealed, you sort of revisit the movie in your head. It's more of a straight narrative. It's impossible for me to watch a movie like this with high cultural relevance and not at some point think of The Simpsons. Because, again, as a child of the 90s, I was obsessed with The Simpsons. I was obsessed with The Simpsons when I was like an eight-year-old before I understood a lot of the references. But I actually learned a lot of, about pop culture from that. And my parents noticed as well. I think they were delighted by that. But, uh, you know, there are still things. I'll watch a scene. And I'll just be like, Simpsons. You know, or I'll watch. It'll be a moment. And for this, it was the nails on the chalkboard with Quint where I was just like, I have seen that The Simpsons did that at least once. And I looked it up and sure enough, there were two times that I had seen those first 10 seasons of The Simpsons. That's the sweet spot where I saw those episodes, every episode, probably at least five to 10 times. And there were two of them in there. It is just hysterical the way that it's used. And it's such a specific thing that it's communicating and it's communicating the same thing both times. Like in the first time, it's like, it's this episode, Homer goes to college. One of the ones Conan O'Brien wrote, him and his like nerd friends that he made there are thinking about a prank and like they're talking about it. And all of a sudden the nails on the chalkboard and it's Bart being like, oh, so it's a prank you want because, you know, he's the prank master, just like Quint is the shark master. And then there's another one with Groundskeeper Willie in like season nine or something like that. You know, that moment with Quint is just like so good. And it's kind of odd that like I can't really experience it the way it's meant to be experienced because when something like that happens, I am reminded of the parody, which I experienced before the actual thing. I don't get the full effect of what it was supposed to feel like. You have no idea how much I encounter this all the time because my kids are closing in on eight and four. And my oldest just started watching The Simpsons a little while ago. Nice. He got curious about it because this game, Lego Dimensions, will include The Simpsons. And he's like, who are they? I want to watch this show. And I was like, all right, let me watch a little bit of it first to make sure it's not too, you know, and it's fine. We started on season one. We watched the first three seasons. And then he said, I want to watch the Simpsons movie. And you watch that. Great. But he's never going to appreciate it just cold the way you and I did. And then we got him this PlayStation three to play the Lego dimensions game on. And I had a Lego star Wars game. And as I'm playing and showing him the Lego star Wars game, I'm realizing he's learning the movies by watching this game. Oh, yeah. That's weird. You cannot recreate somebody else's life for your kids. and for, You know what I mean? Like, that's just the way it goes. Like, I'm sure growing up, I saw references to things before I saw the actual thing. And then you kind of appreciate the actual thing, but you keep moving, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's just, I, and I hadn't really thought to reflect about, like, what it means. That moment was basically ruined. <laughs> Not really, but, like, I can't experience it the way Spielberg intended. You know, I, I didn't even really think about that because I was just so delighted by the fact that it reminded me or that the Simpsons had done it and I had experienced it as a kid. And I'm just like, oh, that's what that is. And also sticklers would point out that the Simpsons stopped being good after season eight. I had this episode guide when I was a kid that went up to season nine. And those, uh, <laughs> I think pretty much everything in there, I mean, you know, with the exception of uh, the one with Skinner, where they kind of 
low key jumped the shark on the show that then would go on for 21 more seasons. <laughs> As Gary Marshall used to point out when it got brought up to him in, in interviews, people would talk about jump the shark and he would say, yeah, we did that episode, and then the show was on for five more years as a number one show. So what are you talking about? It's like, well, what they're talking about is the credibility of the show has gone away. Yeah, I mean, and we and we could get it. We could do a whole other podcast about The Simpsons. Get in line. I'm sure there's eight of them out there already. Probably more than that. I like to round up to ten, just because it's a nice round number. But yeah, it's uh, those were the golden years. After that, I basically stopped watching. For me, I have an immediate gravitation towards any of the episodes that have Albert Brooks in them. The RV is one of the first ones. Oh, um, the uh, what's it called? Uh, you only move twice. Yeah, that's the one with uh, Scorpio, Hank Scorpio. Hank Scorpio. Uh, that to me is the last great one. That that's was season a lot eight. Of people's favorite episodes. Oh yeah, is that season eight? Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, monorail is everybody's first go-to that episode was tremendous music man that one i probably got the reference early on because i I grew up with a lot of musical theater in the house parents playing you know the west side story soundtrack and stuff like that so yeah i think i think i got the music man one when i saw it the first time anything else about it that you love that you were really that maybe caught you off guard oh that's such a great scene that's such a great move whatever anything else about jaws Brody makes the shot at the end without his glasses. What the hell, man? How did he do that? Maybe he's farsighted and not nearsighted or whatever. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Pretty good easy fix for my, my challenge there. I, I, I did enjoy the shark explosion. I did not know how the shark was going to die, but then when it happens, it was pretty damn cool the way that movie ended. And also he gets that line. I mean, that may be the first time we have a hero do anything like that sort of pun with the coup de gras. It's not a pun, but he goes, smile, you son of a bitch. And then he blows it up, right? So it's kind of that James Bondish. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Like, again, like I didn't know how it was going to end. I thought maybe Hooper's thing was going was gonna to work with the cage. How great is that moment when Quint says, cage goes into the water, you go into the water? sharks in the water doesn't he then just turn around and start singing farewell and adieu <laughs> quint is an all-time great movie character great great character and roy scheider i feel i feel like roy scheider has fallen off the radar for a lot of people but in the 70s he made a lot of he had a lot of really great performances really he's great in in jaws he's great in marathon man he's great in all that jazz and also the seven ups he's terrific in that i mean He's a really good actor. Yeah, he didn't have the kind of career that made people say, oh, that guy. Yeah, like Richard Dreyfus. He became Mr. Holland. Yeah. I think we did it. If you'd like to, you can reach out and send us an email at lastonetothepartypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at James underscore Eason underscore music. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason, and the theme music is composed by me, James Eason.